Hello and welcome back to Dark Histories, uh, part two of the Christmas campfire. Again, I'm, I'm recording this on my camera, um, through my camera microphone, so, you know, bear, bear with me with the audio. You might hear some traffic from outside, because um, I'm recording in the daytime, but, you know, hopefully we'll get through it. Anyway, I hope you had a fantastic Christmas. Um, I hope you had a nice holiday, um, or, you know, at least you made the best of it. Um, and I hope you're enjoying your kind of... This is kind of a lazy period, isn't it? Between, like, Christmas and New Year. Uh, it, this was much worse when I was a kid. And I don't know if it was because I was a kid and time just seemed to slow down because nothing was open or anything. But it feels like it was much worse, like, like nothing moved. But at least, you know, although this year, I suppose, nothing's really moving again. So, yeah, we're in that kind of slow-fat period, right? Where we just kind of sit around and be lazy. So I figured... Hey, why not spill it up with the second part of Christmas Campfire? It gives us, gives us something to do, doesn't it? So, yeah, today we've got a bunch more stories. We're getting finished up and we're going to open with a story from Chris. And Chris says, I thought I'd share an experience I had back in 1990 as a police recruit. I completed my basic training at Shotley Police Training Centre just outside Ipswich. Um, for those not aware, that's England. Um, I was about to get cocky and tell you where Ipswich is, but I actually don't know. <laughs> I think it's um, East Anglia, um, so sort of above London and to the east. Uh, I'm now just looking that up and hoping I'm right. I'm sure I'm right. I've been to Ipswich before. My, my English geography, not so great. Anyway, the centre was previously known as HMS Ganges a Royal Navy shore establishment used for training boy sailors. HMS Ganges was most famous for its mast manning ceremony. You might remember that John Noakes, the TV presenter, took part in that ceremony on Blue Peter. He climbed the mast and stood on the button at the top. The mast still stood at the end of the parade square when I went to Shotley, although it was most definitely out of bounds. Male police recruits were housed in single rooms in the old naval ratings block at the other end of the parade square facing the mast. The block was a two-storey building that ran east to west. My room was on the first floor at the western side of the main entrance. There were rooms on both sides of a central corridor and shared bathrooms at the far end of the corridor. Most people on my course went home on Friday afternoon and they came back on Sunday. I didn't have a car, so I quite often stayed at Shotley over the weekend. A few other people would sometimes stay, but it was pretty quiet, and I was usually the only person on my corridor, and sometimes the only person in the entire block. This one particular night, I watched TV in the communal lounge, and went up to bed about 11pm. Another recruit had stayed over, but his room was on the ground floor of the eastern wing, so not really near mine. In the middle of the night, I'd hear the sound of footsteps and boys' voices in the corridor, followed by the noise of doors swinging and water running. It sounded like a full class of boys had been sent to get washed or have a shower. I got out of bed and turned on my light, then I opened my bedroom door. It was really cold outside and I could see my breath. The voices stopped as soon as I opened my door. I called out, who's there? And swear I heard people saying, shh, shh, be quiet. Needless to say, my heart rate went through the roof and I immediately shut the door. I didn't hear anything else, and I know that because I really didn't go back to sleep again that night. I stressed that this was in August or September, so not the time of year when you'd expect to see your breath freezing in the air. 
It's easy to say it was a dream or that I imagined it, but that doesn't explain why there were wet footsteps in the bathroom and along the corridor the next morning. Nice story. Cheers, Chris. I like that. Um, yeah. I thought at the end there, the first time I read this, I remember I, I was thinking you were going to say a similar thing that I, I you hear all the time, and I've said it myself, like, oh, I, I know what I saw or I don't... You know, it doesn't explain what I saw or whatever, but, yeah, no, then you finish it up with the fact that there's wet footprints. I'd have crapped myself. I don't think I'd been staying there over the weekends. I think I would have... No matter if I could drive or not, I'd hitchhiked home. Anyway, the next story is also from Chris, uh, with a K. And he says... Or she, actually. Chris with a K. They say... We use... Just, just non-gender binary pronouns... I was a photography student back in the late 1990s and in one of my classes we had to do a semester-long project. I chose to do mine on the old cemetery here in town. Mind you, old here is only late 1840s. Because it was a semester-long project, I had the time to shoot at different times of the day as well as different locations in the cemetery grounds. One morning, I was out at sunrise to catch the shadows and the way the light breaks over the nearby mountains. I also wanted some long, wide-angle shots so I laid down on the ground. Behind me was a low spot where a lot of sycamore leaves had accumulated and this being late October, they were dry. As I'm shooting, I hear footsteps in the leaves behind me, crunch, crunch, crunch. Thinking it might be a cemetery worker coming to see if I was injured or drunk, I leapt to my feet and whirled around. There was not a freaking person in the cemetery anywhere as far as I could see. Completely empty and dead silent. Yeah, I hightailed it out of that section like my shoes were on fire. Maybe not that scared, but my heart was pounding. I don't blame you. Like, I find that often, actually. Like A lot of these stories, people say, oh, you know, maybe this wasn't that scary, but it scared me at the time. And you're reading it and you think, no, I get it. Like, <laughs> I, I, I would have crapped my pants. Uh, so the next story is from Adam. And Adam says... I have a story for you that comes from when I was in high school here in Seattle. It's a little short, but it's something that has stuck with me over 10 years. My father lived in a house in a suburb of the city that I had suspected for some time of having a presence. Apart from having a generally spooky atmosphere, there were always little noises that I couldn't explain or a particularly cold hallway when you walked by. My sister, who is much more in tune with her sixth sense, had always maintained she saw spirits in the house, but I've never seen anything myself. My best friend was aware of the phenomena and had shared some of my experiences with me. One night, we were particularly spooked. It was just the two of us alone around the house at a very late hour, and we had this growing sense that something wasn't right. We left the house to go to my mother's house on the other side of town, and as we walked to our car, we heard the howlings of what sounded like a wolf, something that doesn't reside anywhere near where we live. As we were driving and got closer to our destination, we again heard the wolves howling and were immediately pinned in our seats in the car, unable to move, shy of turning our heads to look at each other. It felt like my hands were cuffed to the armrests of the car. After a few seconds, the feeling subsided and we carried on and never had anything similar happen again. Thanks for putting on the podcast. I hope you enjoy this story and if it makes the show, I look forward to hearing you tell it. Totally. Yeah, no, no, you're totally welcome. Thanks very much for writing in, definitely. So our last story uh, that's going to wrap up the Christmas campfire for 2020 is from Freddie Jane. And Freddie Jane says, um, 
I've included what you might call a story below. It was just a passing moment that stuck with me forever. You're more than welcome to use it. I'm not really sure what happened, but please feel free to shorten and paraphrase, paraphrase, etc. as you wish. Growing up in London, I was very lucky to have so many fascinating places to visit. I was luckier still, as my dad was a history enthusiast and as quite a bright child, he never missed the opportunity for us to explore a museum or to pick a station, walk and just take in the city. There are very few we have not visited at one time or another, and it was a regular weekend activity, just the two of us. One such weekend, when I was eight years old, we were going to one of our favourites, the Museum of London, which has now been renovated. For those that don't know, the true city of London is a very quiet place on weekends. Even now, but back in 1998 when this event happened, it was near enough a ghost town, especially on a Sunday. I loved the Museum of London, especially the areas that you walked through that were built to resemble the city of old, from Roman times through to Victorian London. I often got a feeling in the museum that was never very busy when we visited, of being watched, or that someone or something could appear at any time. It was exciting more than frightening, and it was probably just the imagination of a child. Upon leaving the museum one Sunday afternoon, my father and I began to walk down St Martin's Le Grand, towards the tube station and our most direct home. Between the museum and the station, we did not see a soul. Whilst this is not a strange phenomena, in London, completely empty streets, including no traffic, is just eerie. It's only a five minute walk, but this day, inexplicably, it seemed to take much longer. As we approached the station, the sky seemed to darken quickly, completely different from the bright autumn sunshine that we had been experiencing. So much so, that my dad, who was a brave and very sceptical man, looked at me in surprise and concern, and we both instinctively increased our pace. Reaching the station entrance, which is a steep staircase straight down from street level, we rushed down only to be faced with blocked off entrances to the platforms. The station, it appeared, was closed. Some sort of gust of wind blew down into the deserted ticket office after us, whipping up leaves and street detritus around our legs. The weird indoor wind died away as quickly as it had come. The ticket windows were dark, but as we looked, a light flickered on in one of the windows. Cautiously, we approached, and I remember thinking how old-fashioned everything looked. From nowhere, a man appeared on the other side of the glass. He was older looking, probably late 60s at least, and his uniform, which did seem to fit the underground, jarred. It wasn't quite right. He appeared silently and did make us jump, although my dad tried to hide it. My dad asked where else we might get a train from, and without speaking, the man lifted his hand and pointed behind us. There was something about him and his smile that caused my dad to grab my hand and run for the exit as soon as the man moved out of the line of sight of the window. We got the impression he was turning towards the door, into the ticket office where we were. We didn't look behind to see if we were right. Reaching the top of the stairs, the bright autumn sunshine of earlier in the day had returned and the wind had dropped to nothing. We both kept running past St Paul's and down towards Blackfriars where we decided to continue our journey by bus. My dad died young and is no longer with us. We didn't speak about what had happened after that day and he had a healthy respect for anything paranormal while simultaneously refusing to acknowledge its possible existence. We both knew, however, that we had experienced something together out of the ordinary and have both been frightened. My dad was not the type to scare easy. I'm 30 now, and when I was about 25, I ended up working for a time in an office block directly over the station. Thinking on the incident, 
I consulted Google and I'm sure the man we saw was dressed like this, minus hat. I honestly don't know what happened that afternoon or why there would be someone sitting in the ticket office of a station that was closed for the entire weekend and I've never really forgotten it. That's a cool story, I like it. I like the, um, I like that you had, so, so Freddie Jane actually um, titled it like a, a I, I didn't want to say it at first, I thought I'd save it, but I like that you titled it a possible time slip at St Paul's um, rather than like sort of jump into the fact that you thought perhaps it was a, was a ghost. Um, you know, maybe it was a, maybe it was a ghost, but maybe it was also a time slip. Um, cause I, I, I would have read that and, and, you know, assumed like ghostly kind of ticket office guy, but it's cool that you, like you say, like all the environment changed and stuff and it was, yeah, like everything seemed a bit old, old fashioned. I like that. Time slips are amazing anyway. Anyway, thank you very much for your story and thank you much, very much everyone for your stories. Um, thank you very much for listening. Um, I hope, like I say, you had a, a, a wonderful new year. Um, or rather, I hope you've had a wonderful holiday and you will have a wonderful new year. Um, you know, we've got, I think, four more days and then it's 2021 and we can say goodbye to this piece of shit year that we've been having so far. So, yeah, let, let's all, uh, you know, head down, race for the prize. Four more days to go and we can move on. So, yeah, I, you know, bigger and better things next year, eh? Thanks very much for listening. Wish you all happy holidays and a very wonderful new year. Thanks very much. Cheers. And we're back just for a little cheeky encore. So I was just wrapping up the editing, um, bit of breakfast editing. It's about six o'clock in the morning. I'm wearing my pajamas. Uh, and I got an email from uh, Rachel. Um, Rachel said, I know you've probably already recorded part two of the campfire stories, but here's one of mine that you can keep, maybe for next time if it's interesting. Well, we'll stick it in as a little encore. So thanks very much, Rachel. Now, Rachel says, this isn't strictly my story, and because my brother is starkly against discussing it, I'll have to keep some of the details out in case anyone recognises some of the particulars. My brother is a Catholic priest, and part of his job is to perform the last rites at dying patients' bedsides. One night, he had been called to the bedside of a teenage boy who had suffered a freak heart attack. When he arrived at the hospital, he found out where the boy was and got directed by a nurse who took him into his room. The boy was alone in the room, that is to say, none of his family were present at that moment. The nurse was lingering in the doorway and my brother requested that he be alone with the patient. The nurse objected slightly, saying to my brother that she wasn't sure if it was allowed given the circumstances and my brother confusedly outlined the service that he had to perform, not really understanding her reluctance. The nurse stated that it was okay, but she would be back in five minutes. My brother then agreed, but felt rather irked that the process hadn't at least been explained to the staff, given that the family weren't there at that moment to facilitate his task of performing his duty. He began to perform the last rites, and he took the boy's hand to comfort him. The boy turned his head as he took his hand and looked into my brother's eyes. As he proceeded on with the words, the boy blinked a couple of times and turned his head again to slowly close his eyes. My brother then finished up with the words and felt great sadness for the fact that a boy so young would be in such a devastating condition. When the nurse returned, she said, OK, father, 
I'll have to ask you to leave now, given the circumstances, to allow our staff to prepare the body. He queried her, What do you mean, the body? And then the nurse said, Well, he needs to be taken to the morgue, father. My brother, obviously shaken at this point, said, He needs to be taken to the morgue. When did he pass? To which she replied, An hour ago, father. He only told our mother about this, who has a big mouth, and told me, and by all accounts he doesn't ever want to speak of it again. He has no explanation for what happened that evening, but swears on his entire religion that the young boy looked at him in the eyes that night. Have a fantastic new year, Ray. Yeah, you too, Rachel. And, like I say, just a cheeky little encore there, just to finish it on a bit of a banger. It's a cracking story. Thanks very much for sending it in. And, yeah, I'll just echo Rachel's... Closing statement there. Have a great new year, everyone. Cheers.